I'm Michelle Brubaker for N Equals One, a podcast about science and discovery at UC San Diego. And I'm Heather Bushman. In each episode, we bring you the story of one project, one discovery, or one scientist. Today on N Equals One, we're talking about glioblastoma, a very deadly type of brain tumor. Yep, that's right, glioblastoma. And unlike most of the previous episodes in this podcast, it's not exactly something you hear about a lot in the news. Why is that? Well, while glioblastoma is aggressive and extremely deadly, it's not exactly what you'd call a popular cancer. It's kind of weird to say that, but you know what I mean. It's not one that we have colored ribbons and 5K races for all that often. It's just not as common as, say, breast cancer and therefore doesn't have as many researchers or as much funding dedicated to it. But glioblastoma is a cancer that especially hits home for me personally. I recently lost a cousin to it. I am so sorry to hear that. What makes this so deadly? Well, glioblastoma kills so rapidly in part because it can be difficult to treat. The tumors contain so many different types of cells Some cells may respond well to certain therapies, while others aren't touched at all. So how is glioblastoma treated? Typically through a combination of approaches. The first step is usually surgery, and that's needed in order to make the diagnosis, relieve pressure on the brain, and try to remove as much of the tumor as possible. But because glioblastomas have these finger-like tentacles, they're really difficult to completely remove. So after surgery, patients typically have radiation and chemotherapy to slow the growth of the tumors that couldn't be removed. So those three treatments together are often known as the standard of care for glioblastoma. What are researchers doing to improve treatment options for patients who have glioblastoma? Good question. I talked about that with someone who has spent the last few years studying how glioblastoma cells grow. My name is Tiffany Taylor. I am a recent graduate from the Biomedical Sciences PhD program here at UC San Diego, and I conducted my thesis work in the laboratory of Frank Fanari. Okay, I also have to introduce here to say that I first said we must have Tiffany on N equals one after she won UC San Diego's annual Grad Slam competition last spring. That means she is the best in the entire campus explaining her thesis work in less than three minutes. She went on to compete against winners from the other nine University of California schools. So basically she's awesome. And a little later in this episode, we'll talk about her career plans and how she's following a non-traditional path after her PhD. Yes, I definitely want to hear more about that. That sounds really interesting. So tell me a little bit about your thesis work. What did you do and and what did you find? So um, before jumping into that, the actual work that I did, just wanting to just talk about the disease that I work on. So in the Fenari lab, we work on a brain tumor called glioblastoma. And so it's known to be the deadliest form of brain cancer. So generally 70% of cases that are diagnosed each year um, end in death within 12 to 15 months. And so this has actually been the reality for patients for a number of years, over a decade. I actually have a cousin who we lost to glioblastoma. Wow, yeah. And exactly what you say, it was pretty quick. Mm-hmm. It's very, very rapid. Um, these tumors are notorious for just being unresponsive to many of the therapeutic um, options that are available to patients. And so it's been 
extensively studied as much as possible to try to figure out what it is that drives these tumors, what are some vulnerabilities that we can take advantage of, and in particular, there are a number of genes that are altered that are um, kind of established to be a part of the progression of this disease. And so in particular, my work focused on one of these altered genes called the epidermal growth factor receptor gene. And so this gene is altered in about half of cases, so 50% of cases. And when it's altered, you get uncontrollable cell growth. Um, and you also have cells that are survivors, pretty much. Um, and so because of this gene and what we believe its role is, there's a number of therapies that have been developed just to specifically target this gene in hopes that we'll generate a durable response for these patients. Wait, so what's this epidermal growth factor receptor that Tiffany studied? Receptors in general are molecules that sit out on a cell surface, like antenna. So in this case, the receptor is sensing for growth factors, and when growth factors bind it, the receptor tells the cell to keep growing and replicating. And that's a really good thing in a lot of situations in the body, but it's not good when these receptors get mutated and are always on. Epidermal growth factor receptor, or EGFR, levels are known to be elevated in many cancers. It's part of what drives tumors. Is epidermal growth factor receptor something glioblastoma patients are routinely tested for? Yes, and for more, here's Tiffany again. Generally, subsequent to standard of care, which is surgical resection followed by a combination of radiation and then chemotherapy, um, some of the biopsy can be tested for molecular markers that might give an idea of what are some of the um, important genetic drivers of the disease. And so if they will see that while this patient samples have elevated levels and expression of the epidermal growth factor receptor, then this person would benefit hopefully from a therapy that would target EGFR. So that's what they call personalized medicine, right? Yes, exactly. That or precision medicine. It's the idea that we can tailor treatments to cancer patients depending on the molecular markers unique to their cancer cells, like whether or not they have epidermal growth factor receptors or not. Here's Tiffany talking a little about personalized medicine for glioblastoma. Right, and I think the field is uh, moving more and more in the direction of embracing that idea. I think we hoped that there could be a one-all, fix-all, but um, it's becoming more and more clear that these tumors are very diverse. They vary from patient to patient, and so that's gonna require um, more diversity and combination therapies. And so as much as this epidermal growth factor receptor gene um, has been established as being really, really important for the initiation of these tumors, um, somewhat for the maintenance of these tumors, when it's been eliminated, you're not getting the long-lasting response in patients that we hoped for. Um, and so this is known as therapeutic resistance. My work kind of started from that reality trying to understand how is it that tumors um, are able to be resistant when this factor is eliminated in order to better develop more effective therapies. And so I took the angle of trying to see, well, what are the behaviors of these cancer cells in the face of such therapies? 
So what are the signs that tell us a tumor cell is actually responding, actually looks like it's being defeated from this therapy, versus what are the characteristics that show that they're unresponsive and that they're actually resistant to the therapies. That sounds like a smart approach. What did Tiffany find? Well, she found an important difference between glioblastoma cells that respond to treatment and those that didn't. And that is whether or not their DNA is damaged. So what I specifically found was that in tumor cells that are considered sensitive and are responding, their DNA is heavily damaged. Um, and also the ability to repair this damage has also been disrupted in these um, sensitive cases. And I also found that this damage was actually due to the elevated levels of some molecules that are called reactive oxygen species. Um, they function in cell metabolism and just the operation of the cell. And when they're in excess levels, uh, DNA is uh, susceptible to being attacked by these species and, and damage occurs. But in the resistant cases, when we looked at, or I looked at characteristics of the resistant cases, they don't have a lot of DNA damage, and they also have reduced levels of reactive oxygen species. So somehow their resistant behavior is associated with the ability to overcome these sensitive phenotypes. So what might this finding mean for our glioblastoma patients someday? Hopefully it means that one day doctors can tweak how a glioblastoma patient is treated based on whether or not their epidermal growth factor receptor levels are elevated or whether or not they see DNA damage in those cells. For example, one patient might receive radiation before a therapy that eliminates epidermal growth factor receptor and another patient might have it afterward and that might change how effective that therapy is. And so just to kind of talk about that in big picture, what that looks like. So um, we talked about kind of the move to personalized medicine, but every glioblastoma patient receives standard of care, which is surgical resection, radiation, chemotherapy, no matter what their tumor looks like down the line. Um, but our work and others have been showing that if EGFR exists in these tumors, then radiation won't be effective up front because EGFR allows these tumor cells to repair the damage that radiation would cause. And so what we hope is that our findings would actually guide in how treatment plans are developed. So it would actually help physicians to know what's the most appropriate window in order to administer radiation. And so we think that that would be after you target and eliminate EGFR, then you would give radiation. And so we hope that that would either block resistance from ever occurring or would delay the onset of resistance. Wow, that seems like it could be huge. Yes. <laughs> uh, so was there anything that particularly surprised you while you were working on this? Yes. <laughs> so what surprised me the most, um, just getting back to the findings, was that because I saw that these reactive oxygen species actually aided in um, producing the damage that allowed tumors to be sensitive, um, that told me that in some contexts, antioxidants, which actually combat and antagonize reactive oxygen species, are not always beneficial, especially for 
a person that has a brain tumor. And so, you know, we, we see in the media constantly yeah. each, you know, your antioxidants are good, eat your berries, they ha they're supposed to be good. And so I was really shocked that these antioxidants could actually help cancer cells in some context to be upfront resistant to therapies, or it can actually help them to come back after there's like a short period of um, response to therapies. And so it still remains to be determined like when are antioxidants a friend or a foe of cancer. But I think I was shocked by the fact that antioxidants are potentially an obstacle for uh, radiation therapy to be effective in patients with brain tumors. And now that you have defended and have your PhD, um, what's next? <laughs> a trip to Disneyland? <laughs> I wish. I was hoping it was going to be a month <laughs> off, but that didn't happen. Um, so there's been a lot as far as like, I think just personal growth and what it is that I envision myself doing and what part of just the um, dissemination of scientific knowledge, like where I want to be in that continuum, if that makes sense. And so I found that I'm really interested in how like scientific knowledge is able to be acquired and used by society, pretty much. Um, especially within academic research, I think that we have to like maintain like diversity in thought um, for innovation, for scientific discoveries. Um, and one thing I'm noticing, though, is that in the next generation of scientists that are coming up, there's not very much diversity <laughs> happening yeah, in, in that sure. generation. And I think um, I've been talking uh, with my friend who's a school teacher about this, and we talked about a lot of how there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about just the nature of scientific work. There's also on a scientist end the lack of the ability to effectively communicate the scientific information to the lay audiences who really need to hear it and be inspired and uh, be taught by it. And then there's, within the younger generations, just apathy towards subjects that have the stigma of being made for a special type of person. You know, you yeah. had this idea that yeah. a scientist looks like this, you yep. know? And so I think those are major obstacles to um, getting more people from all different backgrounds interested in the STEM fields. And so what I actually want to do is transition away from the bench and actually work in science education policy um, and work to come up with ways that we can enhance how science is acquired by society, um, how they can become aware of how science directly impacts their day-to-day -day lives, um, and just try to inspire um, more youth from different backgrounds and get them interested in pursuing studies and careers um, in STEM so that when this you know generation of scientists who have been successful, who have made a number of different discoveries, are ready to pass the baton, there's actually a generation that can catch it and like keep the legacy going. So that's kind of what it is that I want to oh, do next. That's really important. I'm mm -hmm. glad you're interested in that and finding, forging your own career path yes. too. Yeah, to and my uh, mentor has been very, very um, supportive and by talking to him, he's like, I think you would be like really good at that because you're passionate about youth and that's so good. Yeah, so I've had a, a lot of support and that's fantastic. It. Yeah, mm -hmm. so many 
Um, I think science graduate students get too locked into the expected career mm -hmm. path and um, mentors, that's what they are really, all they're equipped to do is to train people to be like them. And so it is really important to have that mentorship, um, mentor, mentor support mm -hmm. in exploring any career avenue and helping to set you up to do the best at, at that particular thing. Right. And I think when I first started graduate school, I was really convinced that I was going to do academic research. This is what I was made for. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and like my boss, again, he, again, he's sort of from the generation where this is all you do is you do a postdoc, you become a professor. And so he really wasn't sure about what alternatives there were. But if there were any that any of us found and wanted to go after, he didn't hold us back. And so I think that that's also important, even if they don't really know how to train you, how <laughs> yeah. to get you to, you know, take the detour, I guess, that they're still supportive in saying, like, if this is what you want to do, I'll support you and I'll let you try and mm, trial and error until you find what it is that you're passionate about. Well, Tiffany's future definitely sounds bright, but what about her graduate thesis work on glioblastoma? Will that be carried on and one day hopefully help improve patient care? Here's what she said about that. So I'm actually working to get my work published, um, but we're hoping that, um, you know, by showing this like new twist that, hey, like this actually can allow um, how standard of care or how therapies of have been done to be refined, we're hoping that more and more people might actually just kind of go back and just say like, oh, instead of just trying to like strike up new things, let's really make sure we understand what we already know. And so that's kind of what I did. I took a step back to be like, okay, what do we know? And from what do we know, how can this help us predict what the cancers might do? And so I think a lot of times like people like to go to new territory and like yeah, do stuff right. versus like, me, I'm more like, okay, let's just go yeah. back and make sure we did a thorough job on what it is that we know and see if anything from there can still tell us what That's it is that we can expect. I mean, it could be something simple, like you're saying, of just reversing the order of treatment. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't need some shiny new pill. Maybe we just need to take the tools we already have right. and use them better. Right. And I think also people are trying to move into repurposing drugs and saying like, oh, we thought that this only worked for this and now we can actually use it for another disease that we didn't think that it worked in. So I think we have a lot of um, tools, <laughs> you know, at our, in our hands. We just have to know what to do with them and when to appropriately administer them. And I think that that is also a way to um, see the change <laughs> that we're hoping to see. So that's it for this episode of N equals one. I'm Michelle. And I'm Heather. Thanks for joining us.